Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Shift Podcast. I'm Alex, a senior behavioral science analyst at HRW and your host. And today's topic is social media and fat phobia. With me, I've got two guests, Millie Morgan, research executive at HRW, and Emma Neville, former behavioral scientist at HRW, who is now training to be a psychotherapist. Welcome, Millie, and welcome back, Emma. Hi, Alex. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to be back on the podcast and to have some time and space to discuss this really important issue that directly impacts so many people's lived experience. As you mentioned, I have a background in behavioral science with a specialism in discourse analysis in particular. So looking at patterns and the stories we tell around certain issues and tracing those patterns back to how they shape and are shaped by power relations and how they shape how we behave and ultimately treat one another. Discourses around fatness is a subject that I've been interested in for many years as a feminist and as someone who's quite interested in how patterns of injustice intersect with how we think about our bodies and about our health. So I'm currently studying and working as a trainee psychotherapist, which I found is a setting where all of these different threads and lenses do weave together and show up in a very powerful and tangible way. Thank you, Emma. Millie, this whole topic came from research that you have done during your master's degree at UCL. Um, I mm-hmm. can see from this your passion for utilizing social media as an insightful source, as a form of research from our previous podcast, and from the fact that you co-founded HRW Eavesdrop, our soon-to-be-released offering that encapsulates social media listening and linguistic analysis as well. Yeah, no, I'm super excited for um, the launch of Eavesdrop. I feel like, yeah, it's going to bring together a lot of interesting avenues from the social media research space. And it's great to be talking about my master's research. So essentially, during my master's, I did a module on implicit attitudes and we were exposed to how to measure them using this task called the implicit associations task which I'll get onto in a bit but um, first of all just to explain what implicit attitudes are and why they're really interesting to study they often reflect group prejudice or stigmatization at a level of society aka socially normative bias which is something that we use in shift but they also often influence our behavior in ways outside of our conscious control which contrasts with explicit attitudes which are often deliberated upon consciously and we can censor them according to what we think might be socially acceptable they even might change depending on who we're speaking to yeah so for example someone who might be implicitly racist might explicitly declare they're not a racist because in some social circles racists aren't very likable i hope in many social circles (laughs) i think definitely in the social circles i'm used to racists are pretty unlikable so someone who's implicitly racist would not express that in their explicit attitudes if they wanted to be liked so explicit attitudes are usually measured through self-report implicit attitudes are measured via task based measurements. We have an example of this at HRW called the Fart Association Task, which we use for market research to access those sort of the quicker thinking and those implicit attitudes towards a certain new therapy. So the way that this works is we ask respondents to click on a word if they associate it with a theme or a new treatment and the length of time that it takes for them to click on that word serves as a proxy for how strongly the respondent implicitly associates the word with the theme. So if that association is congruent with their implicit associations it will be easier and therefore faster to click on the word. What I was looking at in my research during my master's was the implicit associations test which is quite similar in the way that it's task-based but it's used in a way to test implicit biases and positive associations versus negative associations with certain social groups. There's been this ongoing study at Harvard that have been using the implicit associations test to measure implicit attitudes on a really large scale so we're talking like millions and millions of respondents towards different social groups and they've been collecting this for years and years. One study that took this data between 
between 2006 and 2013 and compared how these implicit group biases were changing over time nicely they found that implicit bias against race sexuality age and even disability have all been decreasing so becoming more neutral over time however the one thing that stood out to me was that implicit bias against fat people had become more severe so people are becoming more implicitly fat phobic group biases are greatly influenced by the environment that we are in so what are some of those environmental factors so there have been a lot of studies to kind of show that changes in implicit biases can be linked to changes in the socio-cultural environment which kind of suggests that there is a relationship between the two so your environment can influence your level of implicit bias so for example the granting of the legal rights to homosexual relationships was correlated with a change in the implicit attitudes towards homosexual people over that time one theory for the mechanism of how this happens is that this is because these events in the socio-cultural environment expose people to more examples of gay people in positive and counter-stereotypical contexts. So at the time where there was a lot of homophobia, it would have been counter-stereotypical because they weren't really perceived very positively. But this exposure to these positive examples of gay people is shaping their implicit attitudes to kind of move to a more positive framing of them. A couple of experimental studies have shown this working. So exposure to positive black and negative white exemplars reduced pro-white bias in participants. And this is regardless of their own race and has also been shown in both adults and children. And a powerful tool that shows us how the environment around us influences our biases and how what we are exposed to influences our biases. It's from Google Data Analytics. After a mass shooting in the US, people were looking up things like Islamophobia and very mean and bad things connected with the word Islam. And then Obama gave a speech to reassure the, uh, the the American public after the shooting and to dampen this searching things related to terrorists and Muslims. And everyone thought that the speech was great, was incredible. However, data from Google Data Analytics shows that that wasn't true and those searches still continued. And then another speech was given which gave Muslim athletes as a positive example of Muslim people. And after that, after that exposure to positive examples, the searches changed changed and now more positive things about Muslim people were being looked up on Google. This shows how positive exemplification of certain group, in this case Muslims, can be very powerful. Yeah, definitely. Linking that to this trend that we saw with anti-fat bias, it could definitely be plausible that exposure to more positive examples of thin people and more negative and stigmatized examples of fat people in society could be responsible for the strengthening of this implicit anti-fat bias that we've seen from the Harvard Project Implicit Data. For example, one study showed that discrete events of fat shaming of celebrities by the mass media was linked to little spikes in implicit anti-fat bias, according to the Project Implicit Data, which is super, super interesting. Really fascinating research, especially when we consider that all of these implicit attitudes are things that we are passively exposed to as a default. So you don't need to wake up one day and decide to seek out these fat shaming narratives. They're just implicit and omnipresent in the cultural soup that we swim in in the media that we're typically exposed exposed to. Coming from a kind of counselling psychology perspective, we often talk about making implicit beliefs explicit so that we can work on them and adjust them in a conscious way. But there are definitely different schools of thought about whether that process is the best or most effective approach or not. And yeah, I'm really curious, Millie, if you came across any research on that relationship between our explicit attitudes and our implicit biases. Yeah, that's a super interesting thought. I think it's interesting that you say that from psychology, you're talking about making 
implicit beliefs explicit. I feel like if we say that implicit beliefs are kind of shaped by your passive exposure to things in your context, then one of those things can be explicit beliefs. So if you have an explicit belief that fat people are bad and you're constantly exposing yourself to that thought pattern, that exposure could in a way feed into the sort of implicit beliefs that you're forming around that. It's kind of like affirmations and everything. Like if you say it out loud enough, it'll eventually change your real implicit belief. I think there's definitely a relationship between them. And I think it's really important to check ourselves in order to strengthen explicit attitudes and counter those implicit beliefs in a more positive way. Definitely. I think that research really speaks to the extent to which there are proactive things that we can do to influence our implicit beliefs if they don't match with our explicit beliefs. So one example might be limiting your exposure to fat shaming and reactive content around fat people's bodies and instead increasing your exposure to more critical discourses and consuming more thoughtful and affirming media like social media tools do have options to mute certain voices and to to follow people who provide perhaps a different perspective. Yeah definitely I think yeah that's kind of part of why implicit fat phobia is so big and has increased over time in recent years because it's really going kind of unchecked and people are thinking that being fat is equal to this poor health which is put in this negative context and even though it's not necessarily true. I also wonder which was the focus of my research whether the rise of social media could have anything to do with this increase. Obviously on social media you see a lot of images of very beautiful people that conform to western beauty standards that tend to be very thin and so maybe increased consumption of social media is increasing exposure to positive exemplification of the thin ideal as a beauty standard and providing this vehicle for this exposure. And this is something that I really explored in my research. And there are a few things from studies which suggested this to me. So first of all, the increase in implicit anti-fat bias, according to the project implicit data from the Harvard studies, was most pronounced in Gen Z cohort, who, as we all know, are probably most likely to use more visual forms of social media, such as Instagram and Snapchat and TikTok. And these visual forms of social media are probably more likely to depict images of the thin ideal. And also, if they're using these platforms from a younger age, this is increasing their exposure to it when they're younger and their belief systems less well formed so they have less of like a critical angle to take on what they're just being exposed to and more in general media consumption is positively correlated with internalization of the thin ideal and experimental manipulations of exposure to media images so not just instagram images but just general images from the media have showed that body images more negatively affected after viewing thin idealized images compared to average size models plus size models or even inanimate objects and there could definitely be a link between this negative body image and and internalized fat phobia you know you're sort of internalizing these implicit attitudes towards fat people and if you see yourself as not conforming to this thin ideal that you're exposed to then those implicit attitudes can become damaging to yourself and affect your body image visual social media platforms are also their own special beast when it comes to the thin ideal what with the prevalence of photo manipulation filters and the pressure to conform to beauty standards and to present those beauty standards or to present pertaining to certain beauty standards standard as an online highlight. And on top of that, social media is also designed to captivate and to influence people as we spoke about in our uh, last podcast. So it's all meant to just capture you and, and keep you captive and sell something to you. Yeah, no, exactly. There have definitely been like a bunch of correlational studies that have linked Instagram consumption to negative body image and increased eating concerns and 
and you know which could all be linked to internalized fat phobia as well there was one meta-analysis that showed that body image grows worse over time with increased social media usage so all of these things while we don't have any current concrete experimental evidence to prove this hypothesis all these things point towards the possibility that the rise of social media and with it the exposure to positive exemplification of thin beauty standards are really contributing towards this increase in implicit anti-fat bias and fat phobia. I think right now it's important that we take a step back and talk about the discourse on fatness and how fatness is currently being perceived. Emma, you've recommended an excellent book to us called What We Don't Talk About When We Talk About Fat by Aubrey Gordon. And I'd love if we could touch on it a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah, you're right. When people are curious about fat phobia and anti-fat bias as a topic, I often point them towards the work of Aubrey Gordon. She's a queer fat author and activist, and she writes a lot about fatness in a really grounded and accessible way. So I find her work is great for examining and debunking the myths that we hear repeatedly about fatness, about diets, and ultimately about health. So yeah, that might help us kind of set into context all of this research that we've been talking about. Perhaps the best way to go about this might be to explicate what actually is the standard discourse that we hear about fatness and body size. So at least in the West, the standard discourse of fatness that we encounter is very individualized, it's very moralized, and it claims that if you make the right choices, this will lead you to become thin. So the story goes a bit like this. First, we're invited to believe that an individual's body size is simply the outcome of that person's personal choices. And if you make the quote-unquote right choices, then you'll become thin. So this is where we start to encounter the moral weight that's placed in this story. Essentially, the morally right choice in the standard discourse of fatness is the choice that will promote weight loss. So choices like dieting or eating quote-unquote healthy foods. If we follow that moral story through, it pretty much tells us that if you aren't thin, then not only is it your fault, but it's also a moral failure on your part. And crucially, that means that in this discourse, any health consequences that you have that are assumed to be connected to body size are set up as something that's actually justified or even a punishment for your previous sinful choices. So this story of fatness is the basis for the implicit assumptions that show up in the implicit associations test, as well as in the headlines and the media that we encounter that have to do with body size. So even just as I'm laying out this narrative explicitly, we can start to question whether that cause and effect sequence that it sets up really stands up to scrutiny. I'll give you a bit of a spoiler. Pretty much every single logical step that's taken in this narrative falls apart upon closer inspection and when it's put in dialogue with the relevant science and research. We won't have time on this podcast to do a really thorough debunking, but I will just mention two of the myths that crop up in this standard narrative, the standard discourse of fatness that I found do surprise people when we talk about body size. And the first is that body size is the outcome of our individual food choices. The idea here is that if you have the willpower to stick to a diet, you can control your body size. And this is a particularly vicious falsehood. Meta-analyses have consistently shown for decades that diets do not work in the long term. If anything, actually most often lead to weight gain. To put numbers on it, at least 95% of diets fail, and that's a conservative estimate. The estimates go up to as high as 98%. So that's backed up by twin studies, as well as many studies of adopted children whose body size matches their birth parents despite having a diet much like their thin adoptive parents. So that that really destabilizes our 
implicit belief that body size is simply a matter of what you eat. The second myth that I'd like to touch on is the assumption that being fat means being unhealthy. This is something that we encounter constantly thanks to the wellness industry and the diet industry, but actually the relationship between health and size is not as straightforward and well-established as those kinds of discourses would have us believe. So if our health is really the thing that we're concerned about, the area that we should be focusing on is not fatness, but actually the harmful effects of dieting. So the science has established that the effects of what they call weight cycling, or we might call yo-yo dieting, are incredibly harmful to health. It leads to increased risk of heart disease, cardiac arrest, and death, regardless of gender. The latest research is then suggesting that the things that we might think of as the harms of fatness might actually be the harmful effects of weight cycling or yo-yo dieting. And that's before we add in the added factor of fat people being encouraged to go on appetite suppressants or use weight loss drugs and the harmful effect of eating disorders, which are common amongst fat people, but often go untreated and undiagnosed. So for the sake of this discussion and for analysis, I've been talking about the standard discourse of fatness as this kind of abstract thing. I've been talking about it as a story that we tell or that we're told. But I think it's important to point out that this is a story that we live in our bodies as well as that we speak and share. It has very material effects on all of our lives, regardless of what body size we currently are. And one place where this lived discourse really shows up is in the context of healthcare. So many healthcare providers treat fat people differently from thin people in their clinics. And that happens in unconscious ways as well as conscious ways. We find that healthcare professionals can be reticent to provide high quality healthcare to fat people as they have internalized the idea that health problems are A, a result of fatness and B, some kind of moral punishment for an individual making bad choices. So what we often hear reported from fat patients is that doctors will tell them, lose some weight and then come back to me and tell me how your symptoms are. Fat patients who are told to lose some weight before they can get a surgery or before they can access treatment are being set up to fail. And in my opinion, it's simply not good enough. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. I think that's such an important point that fat phobia is such a problem and you know, it's not just for fat people, but thin people as well. There's definitely been an increase in experience of weight-based discrimination over the last few decades, according to certain studies. And this is definitely also in parallel to the increase in implicit anti-fat bias, which we've been speaking about today. And these experiences of weight-based discrimination are associated with adverse psychological, physical and behavioural outcomes. I feel like you don't need a study to tell you that. Obviously, people who are discriminated against for something that's mostly out of their control is definitely going to lead to a lot of difficulties in life. And also what's concerning is this is especially the case for women, you know, so we could do a whole other podcast on <laughs> on how this is a gendered issue. You. But just in general, this felt stigmatization over weight can also become internalized and lead to things like diminished self-esteem, depression, a general decline in quality of life. The list goes on. Yep, totally. And not just a gendered issue, but also a racialized one. The the further you are in the margins, the worse the issue is. And, and sometimes that decline in the quality of life is brought on by a kind of architectural failure in how we've built the world, how we've constructed the world. It really shows up in our architecture that the world is not built for everyone. It's built for certain bodies, slim, white, male bodies. A very concrete and striking example of this is the size of airplane seats and bathrooms that have been decreasing in size in the last few decades. And that architecture signals to us in a very embodied way, in a very sensory way, whose comfort we care about and who is meaningfully welcome 
them in those spaces. No, that's so concerning. It's something that I think that until you are in a larger body, it's something that you don't consider kind of like the barriers to just living your life. Lean individuals as well can come out worse from the prevalence of fat phobia in society. So people who are a perfectly quote unquote healthy, according to certain standards, weight can internalize weight bias and, and perceive themselves to become overweight when in actual fact they're not. We mentioned as well earlier about how this can be exacerbated by social media presenting very, very thin standards, which really aren't representative of a healthy population. Yeah, that's so true. A lot of times we see the BMI, the body mass index being thrown around as a measurement of how our bodies should be. The BMI is not a good tool for benchmarking healthy bodies, though. It was created in the 19th century by a Belgian astronomer and physicist who wanted to create the measurement of the ideal average white man. So it was not meant to measure everyone anyway from the start. Plus, it's not so easy to benchmark anyway, given the multitude of factors that goes into someone's shape and someone's someone's health, which is very individual. Because we're speaking about the environment, we're speaking about a large variety of genes which are inherited, we're speaking about the interaction between genes and environment and so on. So it's a very, very granular and very personal. And for example, BMI determined overweight black men actually show the least correlation with disorders which are meant to be linked to obesity and the least correlation with disorders like stroke and so on. So that's a clear case there that the BMI doesn't work. And it's important to keep those things in mind and it's important to prevent the further increase in implicit anti-fat bias which might be based on those things and which could also be due to the increase in social media consumption which popularizes tools like the BMI. Thank you so much Millie and Emma for your excellent contributions and thanks to the audience as well for listening to us. If you'd like to read more on the topic we have proposed some useful references in the caption of the podcast and remember if you'd like to get in touch with our behavioral science team you can email us shift at hrwhealthcare.com or message us on x formerly twitter at hrwhealthcare. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.